0: All right, man, it is a joy to be with you all this morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I am excited to be in this house with you. And I'm honored to have the opportunity to open up God's word with you this morning. I'd love to pray just to get our hearts postured and mine in particular. God, we need you. We ask that you would move. This is a hard word, Lord, but it's your word and it's good. So we ask that you would use it. To change me and to change us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever done something wrong, covered it up, and gotten away with it? Isn't it amazing what lengths we'll go to not get caught? About 13 years ago, I was out of town with my wife and some friends for the weekend. I was living in Portland at the time and we were headed on our way back and we were going down some windy country roads that were unfamiliar to me. Well, apparently we were driving at a speed that was in excess of the limit and I realized this as a police officer was passing the other direction and I had that moment, maybe you've had it before where your heart kind of drops into your stomach. You realize that you don't actually know how fast you're going. You're scanning for a speed limit sign. You're looking at your speedometer. Well, that happened to me, and quickly I saw in my rear view the lights turn on and the cop begin to make a U-turn. And what happened next was kind of unexpected. As I rounded a corner and realized that the cop was no longer in line of sight, I turned off onto a side road and proceeded to pull as quickly as possible into a neighborhood and then a driveway. the shock of my passengers, I hit a fairly large pothole when I veered off onto the side road. And my friend in the back seat said, Jake, what are you doing? I said, I don't know, but I'm not getting a ticket. (laughs) Well, after maybe three minutes of sitting in a random person's driveway and after my conscience caught up to my hands, I decided to venture back down to that main road where I had evaded that officer. But now... Knowing that I had broken the law, I knew the consequences, original consequences were much smaller than the new consequences. So I did what most of us do when we're afraid of getting caught. I doubled down and I did everything I could to cover up my mistake. I took a five-hour road on a th- what should have been a three-hour journey. I took some five-hour roads to get home, going the opposite direction of where that cop was likely waiting for me. And I'm sure that by the time I eventually got home, my wife and friend were relieved to no longer hear my worst-case scenario disorder kicking in as I verbally processed how I was going to get caught, arrested, put in prison, and miss my son's wedding and the birth of my grandkids. (laughs) Isn't it amazing, though, what lengths will go to not get caught In today's story, we're going to be going back into King David's life and some pretty hard stuff. Frankly, the things that David does and the lengths that he goes to not get caught are quite staggering. We're going to see, though, that God doesn't let this story end with just David's sin and cover-up. Let's take a look. You can head to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, we're not going to spend much time in chapter 11 today. The bulk of our time will be in chapter 12, but to set the stage, I wanted to give you guys a little context. Up to this point in our series in Samuel, we've looked in on the nation of Israel and the early stories of when they became a monarchy. The narrative up until this point has been subtly answering the question for us of who may serve faithfully as Israel's king we've seen thus far in the story that King Saul fell far short of the standards of a king fit to rule God's people. Recently, we've been looking at Israel's second king, the shepherd boy, David, and David is set up in the book as a contrast to Saul. Saul failed and the kingdom was stripped away, but David is called a man after God's own heart. We've seen that David is a strong leader, confident in the power of the Lord, enduring much hardship and following God's commands. And up to this point in the story, David really hasn't done anything major that's wrong. He seems to be our hero. He seems to be the answer to our question, who may serve suitably as Israel's king? And when we get to chapter 11, things start to change. Chapter 11 begins in verse one with this In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. Listen, friends, this is our first textual clue that David, the warrior and faithful soldier of God, may actually not be all that he's cracked up to be. We note that David is not marching off to war in the spring, as kings do, but instead he is sending others. Others are off fighting for God's people, while the king, the leader, is safe and comfortable back at home. Isn't it true that often we are most susceptible to temptation when we avoid our responsibilities, we avoid distressing thoughts and emotions like boredom and stress and anxiety, and when we are idle with our time because of the luxury that accumulated wealth has afforded us? David should be off leading God's army, but instead he's back home. And the rest of chapter 11 describes David's evil acts that instigate the beginning of the end of his glory days. His kingdom has been stable up to this point, and it's been full of many victories. But make no mistake, my friends, David's kingdom, my kingdom, your kingdom, our kingdoms are fragile. And here's what happens in chapter 11. I'm going to summarize it. We're not going to go through the text much. But here's what happens. David, while not at war, wanders out to his rooftop and from there he sees a woman bathing. Clearly discontent discontent with the wives that he already has, he sends someone to find out who this woman is. This woman's name is Bathsheba, and it turns out she's actually married to one of David's mightiest soldiers, Uriah. Now what happens next is not only disturbing and heinous but quite disgusting and honestly It'll probably make you angry. David decides that he wants Bathsheba. So he sends men to take her. He is the king after all, he's gonna have his way. He takes her, he has her brought to his palace, and he has sex with her. We don't know from the text exactly what happened here, but we know this David is a man in power who's abusing this power to take a woman for his own pleasure. This is sexual assault and there's just no way around it. Well, after she goes home, some time passes and Bathsheba sends word back to David that she is now pregnant. And as you can imagine, this is not good for David. We don't know what people in the palace knew of David's actions or what he felt when he received this news, but we see that David begins to plot a way to get away and keep this sin hidden in the dark. So he calls back Uriah from the battlefield, rewards him with a knight at his home, no doubt thinking that when word gets out that Bathsheba's pregnant, it will look like Uriah was the father. But Uriah isn't like David. Instead, he chooses to be honorable and not enjoy the comforts of his home while his men are off fighting a battle that he knows he should be a part of. So he doesn't go home. David doubles down and tries to get Uriah drunk, hoping that he can coerce him to go home if his guard is dropped. But this doesn't work either. So David keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper into his sin and the cover-up plan. He sends Uriah back to battle with a letter. To Uriah's commander, Joab, instructing him to put Uriah on the front lines, the most dangerous part of the battle, and then pull back all reinforcements, ensuring that Uriah dies. Isn't it amazing what lengths will go to not get caught? And now it seems his plan has worked. Uriah dies on that battlefield. Look with me at verse 27 for what happens next. When the time of mourning ended, David had her, meaning Bathsheba, brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. Wait, she became his wife and bore him a son? This means that the king abused his power in not just taking Bathsheba, having sex with her, and then murdering her husband, but with a massive cover-up, and now he gets away with it? I wonder if he felt that initial relief that he had kept his sin hidden, feeling that he was in the clear. As readers of this text, we're left empty, angry, lost. This is David, God's chosen king, a man after God's own heart. How can this be? What will happen? What does God think? We're left asking these questions demanding resolve. But the story doesn't stop here. Look again in verse 27. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. This is the first mention of the Lord in chapter 11. And we wonder, what will he do to David? The kingdom was stripped from Saul and surely these particular evil acts will merit a much harsher punishment. Well, let's find out. Let's pick up in chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. In chapter 11, people do the sending. David sent Joab and the military to war. David sent someone to find out who this beautiful woman was. David sent people to take her. Bathsheba sent word to David, I'm pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, both to send Uriah home and then to send Uriah to his death. And now the lord sends he sends a prophet his messenger nathan what will happen when the lord sends continuing in the text when he arrived and he said to him nathan said to david there were two men in a certain city one rich and the other poor the rich man had very large flocks and herds but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought he raised her and she grew up with him with his children From his meager food, she would eat. From his cup, she would drink. And in his arms, she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Now what we have here is a story that feels like a parable. While Nathan is speaking on behalf of God, he no doubt uses his smarts To give a contextualized word specific to David. Nathan knows how much time David himself spent as a poor shepherd. He knows that David wasn't always rich and powerful. So of course, a story of a poor man's little nursing lamb being taken by a rich man for his own good will create a strong response in David. Look at how he responds. Verse five, David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he has done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. In a moment of irony, David condemns this rich man to death. Based on the custom, the rightful punishment for this crime would be a fourfold payback, four lambs for the one taken. But David thinks that this man should be killed. He reads into this man's motivations and judges them unforgivable. Sometimes you and I, we see sin in others before we see it in ourselves. If we're honest, sometimes our sin is so blinding that we only see others' sins. But our hypocrisy will catch up to us. Isn't it amazing what lengths will go to not get caught Look at how Nathan replies. And remember, as we read this word, Nathan is speaking for God. So these are God's words to David. Nathan replied to David, you are the man, meaning the man from his story. This is what the Lord, of God, Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives and to your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it was not enough, I would have given you mo- even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hethite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite swords. Now, therefore... The sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hethite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret and I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. You are the man. In the Hebrew, this was a simple two-word phrase. Nathan is tactfully turning the pointed finger of judgment back on the king pointing it. But remember, the Lord sent Nathan. And the Lord's pronouncement is harsh. God starts with reminding David who it was who gave him all that he has. Then God calls out David's actions and pronounces the judgment trouble will characterize the house of David for the remainder of his life and this is the turning point in 1st and 2nd Samuel things will only fall apart from here our story continues though in verse 13 David responded to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord again in Hebrew just two words here one meaning I have sinned and the other meaning against the Lord David is broken He knows that he's been exposed before the Lord and he's not making any excuses. He knows that he has sinned grievously and he knows that he's caught. When we are truly confronted with the weight of our sin and the holiness of the God that we sin against, we don't have much to say. Just a few words is likely all we should muster. This is a true and real confession here, friends, And we'll see in Psalm 51, a deeper look into David's remorse over his own sinfulness. But our text continues. Then Nathan replied to David and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. Nathan's word from the Lord is complete. The verdict is in and judgment is pronounced. And we're left confronted with the weightiness of sin. Despite David's punishment being removed, the consequences of David's sin continue to unveil. Even though David's life is spared, death will still come to his household. One life spared and another lost. And we're stuck with the angst that sin's consequences create in this world. Picking back up in verse 15, the Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became deathly ill. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home and spent the night lying on the ground. After seven days of this, the baby dies. David then stops his pleading, gets up, changes his clothes, worships his God and begins to eat again. David's servants ask him why he's behaving this way. And he answers in verse 22, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. You see, David hasn't forgotten the character of this God that he knows so well. If anything, he's more aware of it. He knows that God has a faithful love that endures forever. He knows that your love will never run out. It, will, it never gives up. It never runs out. He knows that, that God forgives all iniquity. And he heals all diseases. You know, it's easy for us when a leader has a moral failure of this magnitude to immediately invalidate all that this leader stood for. We especially do this in our culture today. And I'm not here to defend David. But I think that our quickness to cancel our heroes when they fall exposes something key about our own heart's propensity to worship people who are in fact not worthy of our worship. Instead of holding men and women in such high esteem, we should look to Jesus alone as the standard, as the mark, as the model human. People will eventually fail us. But Jesus never fails. David still knows God and we have to deal with this. And we and I think that we'll see in just a minute that this is good news even for us. Our last two verses of the day. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and slept with her. She gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And he sent a message through the prophet Nathan who named him Jedediah, because of the Lord. God's back on the scene. The last we heard from him, he was a pronouncement of judgment. Now he sends a message of blessing, a message of love for this new baby, a renaming of a boy born into dysfunction. A name meaning beloved. And our story ends with restoration and redemption. God has brought back, He has made right. It's messy, it's complex, and the fallout of sin continues to unravel in the coming chapters. But for just a moment in time, I think our author gives us a promise to hold on to God will restore. So, we're left here in the wake of this deeply emotional story idle leadership, abuse of power, rape, murder, scandal, cover up, confrontation, judgment, confession, forgiveness, consequence, pleading, death of a baby, new birth, and restoration. What should we make of all this? Friends, our main idea today, the thing I want us to walk away with, is about God's mercy. God's mercy confronts our sin, removes sin's punishment, and restores us from sin's consequences. We're going to break this down into three parts and look at what God's mercy does. First, God's mercy confronts our sin. I want to focus our attention back on a small phrase from verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When we get done reading the story of chapter 11, we have many questions. And maybe the most important question is what will God do about this evil? Isn't this the question that many of us ask ourselves as we look around our world at the evils that we see? Sin on our screens, in our news feeds, on the street corners, in our country's history, in war torn places, or even in the mirror. What will God do with sin? And I think the text answers the question for us. The Lord sends. In this story, he sends Nathan and that begins chapter 12's reconstruction of chapter 11's destruction. And in the full story of scripture, he sends Jesus the Messiah. And that begins the New Testament's reconstruction of the Old Testament's destruction. The Lord sends. But if we're not careful, we'll miss this key point. It is the Lord himself who initiates our redemption. If God hadn't sent Nathan, David would have been just another Saul, a failed king. How many more evils would he have committed to keep his secret hidden? It's God's mercy that doesn't let David get away with it. My friends, living with secret sin is no life at all. Living with the guilt and the toxic shame and the sorrow over hidden sin is no life at all. There's actually research that shows us that shame grows quite well in secrecy, in silence, and in judgment. While all humans experience some degree of shame, shame is a key factor in the perpetuation of addiction and other forms of self-medication that lead to mental illness and all kinds of suffering. So what is the antidote to shame then? The research also shows us that bringing our shame into the light, speaking it, and having it met with compassion is one of the most effective ways to treat shame. Bringing our shame into the light, speaking it, and having it met with compassion. Research is only confirming that God himself knew how to confront David. And he knows how to confront you and me. Is that you today? Maybe you need confrontation. Maybe you need to bring something that has been hidden into the light. We're going to come back to this at the end, but stick with me because God's mercy is available to you no matter what you've done. Secondly, God's mercy removes a sin's punishment. In our story today, after David's confession, Nathan tells David that God has taken away his sin. The phrase used means put away. This is scandalous. According to the Hebrew law, David deserves to die. He committed so many wrongs and he doesn't deserve forgiveness. Isn't this mercy unfathomable? It almost evokes an anger in us towards God. How could you forgive this? And while there's part of me that feels that this morning, what I've really been confronted with this week is the all too common error that I make when I read the scriptures thinking, I'm not like that. Do you ever do that? Read a story of scripture, identify the bad guys and condemn them in your heart while you look for the good guy that more accurately represents you. I know I do. But this week... I've been thinking of Jesus's words in Matthew five, where he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, everyone who is angry at his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Have you ever lusted? What about anger towards another? I've lusted before. That makes me an adulterer. I've had anger in my heart towards brothers and sisters this week. That makes me a murderer. So maybe you and I, maybe we aren't that much different than David. When we are truly confronted with the weight of our sin and the holiness of the God who we sin against, we don't have much to say, but I have sinned against the Lord. And the means by which God puts away David's sin, my sin, your sin, it's the blood of his own son. Our sins are counted no more. They are put away because of the death of Jesus. The simplified message of the gospel is God came to repair what's been broken. His perfect creation was ruined by sin. Everything is broken. People, nature, systems, kings and queens, countries, cities, churches, homes, families, relationships, you and me, broken. We have all been wrecked by sin and we need a savior. When sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Even though David's life is spared, Death still comes upon his household, upon that boy. One life spared, another lost. The payment for sin is death. And Jesus is that payment for all. So Jesus is the mercy of God that removes sin's punishment. Your life, my life spared, another's lost. And the last thing we see is that God's mercy restores us from sin's consequences. When we examine this text, we are confronted with a very real to life dilemma. Sin has consequences and God's forgiveness of our sins does not mean there are no consequences. Friends, forgiveness does not mean erasing consequences I heard recently this comparison between repentance and throwing a stone into the water. Even after a stone has splashed and sunk, we can go and retrieve it. But the ripples created from that stone go on spreading. Even though David has repented and received God's merciful forgiveness, the ripples from David's actions go on spreading. There are very real consequences to his sin that wreak havoc on him and on many others. While this isn't a perfect picture of what I'm trying to say, I think that it gives us a powerful image to help us understand the weight of sin and its lasting impact on us, on others, and on our world. God's grace and mercy removes sin's punishment from us, which is death, but sin still has very real consequences in this life, ripples. And many of us today are deeply wounded and facing the ripples of sin Ultimately, David is restored. He is still king. He still prospers. He still writes scripture. He still has children. And he still is favored by God over and over again. And this is the mercy of God on display. It's God's mercy that sends Nathan back to David to proclaim blessing over his son Solomon. Jedidiah means beloved of God. God's mercy restores us from sin's consequences, even if it doesn't take them all away all at once, or even if it doesn't ever take them away. You are not your sin. You are not your sin's consequences. But our sin's consequences are often not just felt by us. In many instances, sin creates ripples that affect many others. And before we move on today, I want to point out something that I think can be easily overlooked in this story, and that is Bathsheba's life after. While we don't get many clues from the text as to what was happening in Bathsheba's mind or heart in our story, I think we can get some clues as to what was happening in God's mind and heart towards Bathsheba. And I think it would be unwise for our church at this moment in time, in today's day and age, with the stories that we've unfolded in the last year to not spend a little bit of time talking about victims. Regardless of what was happening in Bathsheba's life, She should never have been victimized like she was, and it was not her fault. She was taken by a man so powerful that even the hint of resistance could have led to her death. The only person that disobeyed David in the text was Uriah, and he died. She lost her husband because of the murderous intent of her predator. She had to marry the man who did these horrific things, She then carried and birthed this unexpected baby, reminded daily of sin's consequences on her life and on her dreams. And then she lost a young boy because of another man's sin against her and her late husband. Bathsheba lost everything. And you might think that because the story doesn't highlight her, that God doesn't care or he doesn't see. But I can't help believe that when God considered what David had done as evil in chapter 11, he had his daughter, Bathsheba. Name means um, daughter of oath, daughter of promise. I can't imagine that he didn't picture her. I don't know why God let any of this happen to her. A lot of pain is like that. We don't get to know why and God doesn't tell. But what I do know to be true for Bathsheba is that she was so valuable, so seen by God that he used what was evil in his eyes to make something good, something beautiful, and something everlasting. In Matthew's account of the genealogy of Jesus, he includes five women And including women in genealogies during this time was not normative, so we must take note. Bathsheba, in Matthew's account, is called Uriah's wife. Matthew's genealogy is breathed out by God himself. And I think that God does this not because Bathsheba was King Solomon's mom and King Solomon was in Jesus' line, but because God knew. He knew her. He knew that she was Uriah's wife, before she was Solomon's mom. Being victimized can rob you of your identity. And I think that the Lord is using Matthew to honor Bathsheba's former identity as Uriah's wife. Listen, if you are in this room or listening online or sitting up at Mercy Northeast, I want you to look up at me for a minute. You are made in God's image. And he calls you good. You are invaluable to your Creator. No matter what ripples you walk in here with, he knows. And he is in the business of restoring what has been broken. He is healer. Jehovah Rapha, God, our healer. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. He deals tenderly with those that are wounded and he is near the brokenhearted. So if you're sitting in here and feeling any type of shame or sorrow from sin committed against you, know this, God considers that sin that was done against you as evil in his sight. And while he does offer forgiveness to all sinners, he himself knows what it's like to suffer at the hands of other sinners He wants to heal you. He wants to restore you. And healing from assault, abuse, neglect, or really any kind of betrayal or harm that is done to us, it can take much time. It can take much care and it can take much attention, but because of God's mercy, that healing can begin today. So what do we do with this text What are we to take away? God's mercy confronts our sin, removes sin's punishment, and restores us from sin's consequences. And my guess, matter of fact, I know this. We all have work to do with the Lord this morning. At Mercy, we expect God to change a life today. And I think that every single person in this room, including me, has a response to this word. Every single person in Northeast every single person online, every single person listening to this months after it is gone live, we all have work to do today. Maybe when you hear a story like this, you think I can't relate to this. My sins aren't this bad. I don't really think my wrongs are that big of a deal. Often we minimize our sin. And this is a way of keeping our sin in the dark. Isn't it amazing what lengths we will go to not get caught? Well, if that's you this morning, I want you to just start with being honest about that. I want you to own, even if just to yourself, I don't think my sin is that big of a deal. Remember, it is God who confronts our sin. When we hear the spirit of God telling us that comment was hurtful, that attitude, Unacceptable. We're being deceptive or prideful, conceited, envious, jealous, whatever. When we hear these things, we are experiencing God's mercy. It's God's mercy that confronts our sins. And if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you regularly, convicting you of sin. Brothers and sisters, this is God's mercy. Why would we not lean into it? Maybe you're in here and you're in need of healing today. You've been carrying the wounds of sin, yours or someone else's for far too long and you're ready to stop fighting this alone and you want to come to the Lord and ask for healing to begin. You don't have to be named by your sin anymore. You don't have to stay an adulterer. You don't have to stay a thief, a liar, a murderer, a gossip. You don't have to stay these things. You're not named by your sin any longer. You're not named by the sin committed against you. Instead, you can be set free. Sometimes wounds that we have, they have trouble healing because they're created through trauma. And every time we encounter a reminder that we are wounded, it opens us all, it opens us all up again. Listen, if that's you, I want you to know that this is not your fault. And you are worthy of safe people and safe places to process and to experience God's healing today. Here at Mercy, we want to be a place for those that are hurting. We have pastors and leaders who are ready to help you today. Men and women who are eager to help you find the care that you need, that you deserve. And if you need help after the service, come find me at Northeast. Find Pastor Joseph, one of our other pastors, a staff member, somebody you came with. Find somebody and and begin that journey of healing today. Lastly, you may be in here today and you're most like David. You need God's mercy to confront your sin. You have been hiding, covering up, digging yourself deeper and deeper into the lies. Maybe today's word from Nathan felt like a word to you. The feeling that you feel right now deep inside of you, making you think that I'm talking directly to you. That's not me. That's God. And that's his mercy. I know it feels terrible, but there's mercy waiting for you on the other side of repentance. Maybe you need to hear it one more time because you have all the walls up in your heart. You are the man. You are the woman. It's you. Today, Today is your day. Today is the day for you to come clean and experience God's mercy. We're going to end this part of our services with some space for this very thing some space for repentance. We regularly talk here at mercy about people coming up to the front to pray in front of the stage or in the aisles or wherever there's space. There's not a lot. We talk about this and listen, there's nothing special about this this stage. There's nothing special about anything related to asking for forgiveness. You can receive forgiveness if you have a broken heart over your sin any day, anywhere. But I do think that there is something to having our body follow the posture of what our hearts are feeling. So if that's you and you need to repent today, I'm going to ask you to kneel. Kneel in your seat. Come to the front and kneel. If you aren't able to kneel, picture yourself before the throne of God kneeling. It's in submission, begging for forgiveness. Against you, Lord, have I sinned? What will we do with this story? It would be a shame for us to leave this place and not let whatever is hidden come into the light. So as the band begins to come up here and starts to play through our next song, we're going to venture together to the throne of God. And we're going to lay ourselves before our Savior who died for us, who rose from the dead, purchasing freedom and forgiveness from sins. Let me pray to prepare our hearts and then we'll move into this time at Northeast. Pastor Joseph's going to guide you all. God, we need you. We need you. I can feel in this room the weight of sin. I can feel your spirit blocked. Lord, descend on us. Convict us. Lord, there are people that need to experience healing today. Lord, I pray that they would have the courage to find someone and begin that journey. Lord, convict us of our sin, small and big. Help us to be broken before you as we move into this time. We love you. We love this story. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your resurrection. In your name, we pray these things. Amen.